0: Well, it is a great blessing for us all to be together this morning, not just because it's Father's Day, though we are here to focus on the God and Father of us all, and not just because it's the first day of the week we ought to be focused on God, though He has called us together to not forsake assembling ourselves together on the first of the week. But every day we ought to be glorifying God. These songs have been a great reminder of who He is and the great things He's done for us, and we ought to just stand in awe every day of the Creator and our Savior, and all that that entails, and all that He's done for us. This last week, uh, I was away uh, sharing in a series of lessons on apologetics in Lexington, Kentucky, and this was one of those lessons we'll be looking at today. And this is a lesson that I I chose to to teach today, partly because I've been in this subject all week, but because after I taught this lesson there, one of the college-age kids came to me and said, thank you. Those who have been raised in the church never get taught about these things. People just presume we know all of this, and this was amazing and helpful to me, and so I hope it'll be helpful to you. It's a subject that has meant a lot to me over the years. Uh, uh, Many of you who know me uh, recognize that my background was in atheism, and I tried to prove that God doesn't exist by using this word to do it, and this word taught me that he does. (laughs) There is so much about this word that is amazing. We're going to look a little bit at one of the accusations that's made sometimes, and one that I used to make regularly. You can't trust this word because by the time it gets to our hands, it's been corrupted. It's been through so many translators, through so many copyists, that it's been corrupted. And so you can't possibly think we've got here what originally, even if God did reveal to these men, what originally was there. What we've got is something completely different that's been tainted down through the years. That is an accusation that's made. And... If we don't know any better, it's an accusation that could cause us to stumble in our faith. What I want you to see is just how much overwhelming evidence God gives us for our faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that faith is the substance, the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things unseen, and God gives us ample evidence. That's how we're able to make an apologetic, a a reason for what we believe. And I believe understanding about the Bible text is a part of that reason. Our brother just read from 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is useful, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those are strong (coughs) words that are revealed there. Peter goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse 19, we have the prophetic word, that is the word of the Old Testament, confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scriptures is of any private interpretation, for pri- prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But Peter, who wasn't there, it, it's been at least 500 years, or, or nearing 500 years by the time Peter comes around, since the Old Testament was written, the last of it, And he completely trusted that the prophetic word there had been confirmed in their day. He held true what was written before. And this is 500 years removed, 440 from the time Malachi was written, and over 1,000 years, 1,400 or so, since the books of Moses had been written. And yet Peter trusted them and said, we've seen the confirmation of it in our lifetime. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, as Paul is dealing with some issues that have arisen in a church that has a composition of both Jew and Gentile, in a Gentile world where things are a little different than the Jews have been raised to do, and the Gentiles are coming into the church, and Paul is laying down some instruction that's a little difficult uh, for some to accept, and he says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul doesn't say, let me tell you what I think about this, and here's what you ought to do. Or, here's what culture teaches us. He says, this is what God says. And he says, if you have some kind of problem with that, you're arguing with God, not just with me, not with men. And so, as we think of those things that are said, the Bible makes some really bold claims. Over and over, the Bible makes bold claims. It claims to be the direct product of God's breath and mind. And that word breath is spirit. <laughs> that God breathed this out, that His Spirit inspired men. Holy men of God were moved to speak as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what they wrote and what they spoke about. That's a great claim. And so, it also claims to equip men for every good work. In fact, it says its best work, Romans 1 verse 16, is salvation. It is the power of God to salvation for all who will believe. And so, we've got this word that's been handed to us, and the the word itself says, if you'll just believe me, I can help you to reach a forgiveness of sins, salvation, eternal life. That's a powerful claim. And Bible writers, unashamedly, like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 14, claim they were writing the very words of God, not the words of men. So those are really bold claims. So you can see how if someone comes along and says, but you can't trust them because the Bible's been corrupted. <laughs> if the Bible's been corrupted, then there are some things that we have to sort of admit. One It casts serious doubts on its claim to be from God. If it's from God, really, couldn't he have done a better job of preserving it? Or if it is from God, wow, what kind of God is that that hasn't got the capacity to preserve his word down through the ages? Those accusations come. And then, usually, it's thrown out, and the idea of God is thrown out. This is something men created at the time they needed it. Now we've got science. We don't need God anymore. Well, I want to show you today science the science of restoring ancient texts. There's a science to it. We are not basing our faith on on just blind hopes, (laughs) but on science, on on real verifiable facts. I want you to consider God's challenge. I I love this text from Isaiah 41, because God is really asking the false gods and the ones who believe in them to give an apologetic, to make a defense of why they believe what they believe. And I think this is A valid line of, of, of argument. We ought to ask people to defend what they believe. They ask us to. We ought to ask them to defend. But in Isaiah 41, starting at verse 21, God says, Present your case, bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen, predict the future. Let them show the former things what they were. In the Bible, God speaks of the distant past and He also speaks of the future. God can do that, and he's challenging these idols. Let us consider them and know the latter end of things, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. In the next couple of verses, God talks about something that's going to happen in the not-too-distant future, about 150 years down the line, something they can verify later. He says, I can tell the future. You can't. So if God can talk about the past and talk about the future and then write these things down, can he not live up then to defending what he's done? (laughs) That's what he's challenging them with. I think God lives up to it. So if the Bible has been corrupted, at the very best... We should just take sort of what's useful in it. These are wise words of men. (laughs) And we should just ignore the boasts and the claims that it makes, that it's from God. We can can throw that out. Those men thought they were hearing from God. They were pretty wise, and they gave us some pretty good wisdom to live by, just like Confucius or Buddha or some others. But they made some claims about God. We can just sort of throw that stuff out (laughs) at the best, if we're going to take it and be nice to the Bible. But what people want to do when they start to make these claims is they want to treat it in a worst-case scenario. Here is a Bible that's trying to tell you you've got to change your life. It wants to judge what your choices are. And it wants to say that you've got to follow this strict morality of the ancients, and if you don't, then you're condemnable. And that is malicious. That is dangerous, and we ought to just throw this book completely out. That's where people want to end up when they start saying you can't trust the Bible. It's a shame. But the Bible does make some pretty strong claims that if you're going to have to deal with those claims, you're either going to have to throw the Bible out or accept it altogether. If the Bible has not been corrupted by the time it gets to our hands, we must seriously reconsider its claims to be from God. If this has been preserved over thousands and thousands of years in integrity, that says something about this process and about one who may have been securing this. The capacity of the God who has revealed this and made claims that he could handle all of these accusations, could handle the way this has been done. Again, consider his challenge to the idols in Isaiah 41. Can you tell me about the past? Can you tell me about the future? Well, okay, outside of the Bible, what can you tell me about the past? <laughs> James Webb Telescope right now is trying to look back into the past because they think if they see far enough into the, distant, uh, into the distance where they can see light that's from billions of years ago, they'll be looking at the past. It's a little bit absurd thinking. It takes a lot of physics to, to try to figure that out. But they're trying to see the past. <laughs> The Bible, God says, here's what happened in the past. Let me tell you about it. (laughs) Can you see the future? (laughs) How many people are trying to predict the future? Trying to predict the stock market futures? (laughs) Well, get lucky with that. Sometimes you will. Most of the time you won't. Maybe you can pick an an average and do okay. But the future of anything, you can't predict it. But God can lay it out. In fact, that's what Peter was saying. He's standing at the end of a future that God had predicted. And he said, this word's been confirmed. It's more solid than we ever thought. Because he can look at that word that had been preserved down through the ages. But the point of that is, as we look at all of this, either we take the whole Bible, even the parts we don't really particularly like. Well, When I came out of atheism, there was a lot I struggled with in the Bible. I thought, the God I believe in wouldn't do that. But then I realized, yeah, yeah, he would. I wouldn't do that. I need to see what the God I believe in actually says. And if I believe this is his word, which I came to believe, then that's what he's going to do. I need to change, not him. We've got to take the whole thing whether we like it or not, because the Bible itself makes such claims that it leaves no middle ground. Either it's the word of God, or it's just some mixture of, of nice, wise sayings from the past. It's either one or the other, but there's no middle ground. And so you throw it out, or you take it all. And so I want to show you why I believe we ought to take it all. Was the Bible corrupted? Before we got it, I want to look at the process of the restoration of ancient text. This is a science. And it's done not just with the Bible, but with every kind of ancient text. You start out with an original manuscript. That word manuscript literally means written by hand. It is an autograph, is what they're often called. That just means self-written, autograph. And we see an example of this in 2 Thessalonians 3:17. I love this, by the way, this, this text. I'm a language guide, so this really appeals to me. He says that the salutation of Paul with my own hand, it's an autograph, which is a sign in every epistle. Some have, is my signature in every epistle. So I write. You ever think about that word signature that begins with the word sign? (laughs) When you sign a check, we even say that. You put your signature on the check. What you're saying is, yes, this is my authority for that money to come out of the bank. When you sign a document, you're saying, yes, I've read this document. I give my authority for these things to happen, whatever the document is. It's a sign, and it's an indicator that, yes, I'm in agreement with this, whatever it is, contract, whatever it may be. Paul is saying, you know I wrote this because I picked it up and wrote the last few verses with my own hand. Usually he was dictating, and he would pick it up and write his signature. This is my sign, which means all these words I approve of. These are from God. Anyway, that's what Paul would do, and so we get this idea of the autograph or the manuscript, even from uh, this part of text. When you're looking at scholarly books on, on uh, the science of putting ancient text together, you'll see this abbreviation MS or MSS. That's just manuscript or manuscripts. So uh, I'll show you some of those later perhaps in some of our slides. The original autographs were written on papyrus, on, on paper that had been pieced together from reeds, or on parchments, which were usually animal skins or some other organic uh, texture that could they could uh, put together some uh, organic uh, material that could get get together. And so you've got these originals written on this material that's sort of fragile. What happens when it gets sunned on and rained on a bunch? It starts to break up. It starts to to deteriorate to the point that all of the original manuscripts have been lost to the processes of time. We don't know of any that exist today. Extant is the word that's used in scholarly circles. There's no extant original Bible documents. There may be some. We don't have them in hand. There may be buried still. They're still digging a lot of stuff up around Jerusalem and in the Bible lands and even out in the Middle East, and they're finding stuff every year, new finds that are incredible, that really help with the scholarship of this Bible that we're reading. And so if you have a newer translation, the New American Standard just redid their translation in 2020. It's got the latest archaeology. You've got things that have changed because we understand the language a little better from finding other things that weren't even in the Bible, but were written in the same language as the Bible that gives us clear understanding of how those words were used and what they meant. But we have no known extant original autograph uh, uh, documents of the Bible. And so this was where, as an atheist, this is where as as a Bible critic, you come in and say, see, you don't have the original. So how in the world do you believe that the copy of 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 the copy that you have says what the original said? You can't prove that it did because you don't have the original to compare it to. Aha! So good luck with your myth. Good luck following these fables. That's where they go. But I want to show you that's not at all what we're dealing with. There is a science behind restoring ancient texts, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. You start with the autograph. Of course, you've got very few of those. There would have been 66 total autographs from the total number of Bible books because there's only one of the original, right? Now, the same guy who wrote it might have made another copy. They usually didn't make their own other copies, but they wrote an original. So you've got 66 original scrolls or parchments out there somewhere and they may have all just completely disintegrated by now. We'll see some really old ones in a minute that aren't even as old as the autographs, and they're pretty well disintegrated. So we imagine these organic materials over time have just disintegrated. But you start with the autograph, and then, because from the beginning, these men believed they were being moved by the Spirit of God to write these things, they saw these as very important and needed to be preserved. Well, the best way to preserve text in antiquity, you can't make a photocopy like we did this morning with our class material, now we've got 35 versions of the same thing. 35 exact copies of the same thing. You couldn't do that. So you had what are called scribes. Men who became professionals and who were very uh, uh, meticulous about the work that they did who would copy word for word, position for position, these texts of the original manuscript or the original autograph. They would then make another manuscript that was a copy. It was still written by hand. They didn't have the printing press until the 1500s. (laughs) So they're doing this by hand, all these copies, but they would make hundreds of them because they thought these were very important and they believed they were from God. So right away, the original's here, but you've got a hundred copies of it that look just like it, except written in the hand of of the scribe now, not the hand of the man who originally wrote it, one of the apostles or one of the prophets. What do you do with that? Well, that's still only hundreds of copies. By the, the time of Jesus, there are hundreds and hundreds of synagogues all around the world. and They are going to want copies of these Bibles. Some of the richer people want to have their own scrolls at home that they can be studying from. And so you make copies of the copies. And you might want somebody else to hear about what you've been reading in one of the books. So you might write a letter to somebody and you copy a section of the book of Isaiah in your letter. And that gets sent off. And then you think, well, uncle so-and-so who lives way down in in Ethiopia, he can't read Hebrew or he can't read Greek, but I can translate it into his language. And so you translate it into Ethiopian, and then you have a translation more commonly called a version. You ever heard of the New King James Version? (laughs) It's a translation. You're not reading Greek and Hebrew. You're reading translation into English from Greek and Hebrew. That's what a version is. So the English Standard Version, New American Standard Bible is a version. But that's all that word version means. It's a translated version of the original text. And some are better than others. And you can read in the, the front of your Bible. It tells you how they went about their translation process. Some of them are word-for-word translations. There's one called Young's Literal Translation. Try to read it. <laughs> the word order's all, all messed up. Because in English, we have a certain syntax that we follow when we, when we write things. In other languages, it's an, another arrangement. In Brazil, for example, we want to say a fast car. We say a car fast. <laughs> you turn it around. What's most important is the object and then what the object is doing or what describes it. But in English, we want to say that fast car. So we want to hurry and get that over with so we can get to the object, right? In German, the verbs are at the end of the sentence. <laughs> Sam Clemens has a famous line. says, if you see a bunch of men standing around uh, in Germany, they're not waiting for the punchline. They're waiting for the verb. <laughs> they don't know what's going on until they get to the end of the sentence. At any rate, the syntax is different in different languages. So these versions are going to have some different word order. The good versions will be the ones that'll sort of take a mixture of what's called dynamic equivalence, where they look at the phrase and they understand what the phrase means and they put that in an order that makes sense to us. And so they make sort of a translation and uh, a bit of interpretation at the same time. Now, I'm not saying they're interpreting it based on their feelings. I'm saying these are linguists who are interpreting language so that when it's translated, it makes sense of the way it originally was. As uh, When I lived in Brazil, I had to translate, but there are some things that you just can't translate straight. You have to interpret. Someone says, raining cats and dogs. I can't say that in Portuguese, and someone understand what I'm talking about. I have to explain that there's a lot of water coming down out of the sky. So that happens in translation. But there are much better translations than others where they're just honest about how they're doing it and you know they're not inserting their own beliefs and they they have checks and balances. You can read about that process usually the first couple of pages of your Bible. We'll talk about how they went about their process. And we can talk later about that if you're interested in the science behind that as well. That's not part of our lesson today. That was a bonus. Anyway, so what do you do? You've got all of these copies of copies. You've got quotations in books and in letters that are sent home. You've got versions now. And so from all of those, the process repeats. you got people that have a copy of a copy, but they want a copy for themselves, so they make a copy that they can keep. And then they want to send it to to grandma, so they'll copy two or three pages of a letter. They may have the letter to the Colossians. They might be in Colossae. Well, I can send this to grandma who lives over in Philadelphia, and so they make a copy of the Colossian letter and send it off to her. And then more copies are made, and more versions are made, and what ends up happening is you begin to get what are called variants, You've got a version made where somebody translated it and used a completely different syntax, completely different structure, may have inserted the word Lord before Jesus when that wasn't in the original, but now it's in his copy because he understands Jesus as Lord, so he just puts that in there. That happens, but you have what are called variants. That doesn't look like what we saw a little earlier. All of a sudden, this variant is different, and there might be a branch of those because somebody gets that one that said Lord Jesus, and they copy that one. And it doesn't look like what that one looked like. Aha! So now we've got insertions going on, right? <laughs> we'll look at that in a moment. We do. We know those are there. They're traceable. What happens from there? <laughs> the process repeats on each of these levels. And so what started out as an original autograph that became a hundred copies became a thousand copies, became a thousand citations, became a bunch of different versions. And now you've got that process repeated over and over and over again because people thought these texts were super important, and they wanted to make sure they had access to them and others had access to them. And so before the printing press came about, which now, (laughs) since the 1500s, you can get exact copies, exact replicas, and I mean, some of us are reading on the same page if we pick up our Bibles. They're exactly alike. But back then, you still had lots of evidence. What I'm trying to point out to you is, there is ample evidence to support the text that we're looking at. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. But, the critic in me is going to say, yeah, but they're all made copies of this guy who started spelling stuff wrong and getting, ad, adding stuff in to his grandma and all these other things that have been inserted. So you still don't know if you've got what was in the original text. Okay, right, let's talk about that. <laughs> what do you do with all of that stack of stuff? Well, that stack of stuff is a great blessing. The more and more they uncover, the more and more evidence we're finding to support what we've got in our hands here. It's a beautiful thing. So let's start with all that evidence now. Those thousands and thousands and thousands of different copies and citations, things that we're just uncovering the more we dig, what are you going to do with that? How do you go about arranging that? Well, you've got to put it in some kind of an order. And so what they've done basically is two different types of arrangement. One, what's called the majority text, they start seeing all these texts that look almost exactly alike. There's very minor variations. And they'll usually find them in similar areas of the world. In fact, most of them in, in one area of the world. We've got all of these copies that look similar. And so they start to put all similar things grouped together. And they begin to get these sort of minor groups of this greater text. And you can start comparing those. You can see, wait, they're saying the same thing here. You know, this word order is different, but it says the same thing. And I can even tell what verses these are. I can read, these are all the same book. And so you begin to just sort of observe. Science is observation, right? You observe how these things are put together, and you class them together with other things that are just like them. There's another way to do this, though, because what they discover is that this majority text is usually a lot of the newer copies, and I'm still talking about a thousand years ago, but, you know, uh, but they're newer copies. You might decide these newer copies, though, they're going to have the errors in them, right? This is copied after somebody started making mistakes. I've found some texts that are really ancient. Those are going to be before the mistakes were put in, likely. And sometimes you can trace and see that they're not in this one. So the mistake happened after that. So let's go with this one. We'll make our Bible based on this. But there's problems with both approaches, and some of them we've already sort of mentioned here. There's problems with the majority text approach. You've got specimens that are too recent. <laughs> oh, yeah, if somebody had made a copy of a Bible about 10 years ago that had only seen a handwritten version and hadn't seen anything off a printing press, there might be a lot of errors in that copy. I might expect that, especially if they're not a professional It's not what they do for their living. They're just somebody who wanted to make a copy of the Bible. I've tried that myself. I've found lots of errors in mine where I repeated words or other things. Another problem is that it perpetuates these variations. The the further out you get from the original, anything that's been added since the original and somebody copies that, they're going to copy that too. Now I want to show you something that happens and this is is dishonest. When people want to say that there are thousands and thousands of errors in the Bible. What they mean is, there was an error made 800 years ago and it got copied thousands and thousands of times. It's one error. It's got a thousand copies, but it's one error. And so they try to make the weight seem like it's really stronger in their favor than it is. Not everybody does that, but there are some dishonest people out there making charges. and I was one of them <laughs> who would say, you can't trust it, it's, it's thousands and thousands of errors, because I heard that somewhere. And when I started digging in, I realized, wait a second, it's <laughs> not thousands and thousands of errors. There's thousands of copies of one error. Let's be honest, that's one error. <laughs> it's not thousands of errors. On the other end, on the ancient text you got very rare specimens. There's only a few you can see. Those are actual images, except that one scroll that's, uh, that's obviously designed. Those are actual images of some of the ancient texts. And we'll look at some more of those in a moment. That's what's left. They're little fragments. <laughs> I don't know if you've dug through and found like a paper you wrote in kindergarten or something, and it's all yellowed and the corners are missing and something might have eaten a hole in it. That's what happens with organic material. But imagine something that's not from kindergarten 40 years ago. That's from 2,000 years ago. What in the world is that going to look like? It's going to look something like that. And so the specimens are in rough state or are often incomplete. Parts have just been broken away. Remember, we're dealing with scrolls, not even books. Even how many of you have had to get a new Bible because your binding comes out? You, know, you use it very much. The pages start falling out. Think about a scroll where you're opening and enclosing it, and you're rolling it open and shutting and you're digging to the middle to find something. What's going to happen? <laughs> Ends of that are going to break off. Uh, I looked at uh, one of the scrolls. We, were, we got a chance to go to the Ark Encounter, and there's a scroll there that's ancient. I can't remember exactly how old it is. It was found in, in the region of Israel. And you can tell where it's been sort of coupled together because pieces were breaking off and they just sort of stuck it back together. And this was done by ancient peoples and it's been uh, uh, reformed now. But it's amazing to look at. But well, that's what you would do. You'd have pieces breaking off. And then how, do you, how do you keep that together with the scroll? Over time, those pieces that broke off are just going to get lost. What you do with pages falling out? The book of Ephesians was missing from one of my Bibles. It just fell out and I couldn't find it anymore. I didn't know what happened to it. So that happens to to text. It happens to ancient text. It happens to modern text. So what we try to do then, once we have all of that information, we want to sort of synthesize both of those. You want to take the majority text, what it looks like. You can get a really clear image. Compare it to the ancient text you have. Correct if you believe that the change happened after those ancient texts. Correct it. Sometimes you'll find out there's something in the ancient text that's not in the new stuff. Well, maybe something fell off. (laughs) from one of those scrolls and never got copied into these others. Now you've got some new material to work with. It happens all the time. But when you put all of that together, and you begin to get what's called a restored or a received text. And the purpose of the science of textual criticism is not just to see if we can piece all this together. It's to ascertain what was originally there. This is Geisler and Nix in their book, From God to Us. They talk about what the what the the goal is when you're putting together ancient texts. You want to know what did it originally say? Not what is all the information we have, but how do we restore it to what was originally there? And it's what we do with every ancient text we come across, because they're not all in good shape. We don't have them in a library like we would find most of our books today. Even in libraries, stuff gets deteriorated over time. But there's the basis of science. Now, that's a simple, simple version of it. It's a lot more complex than that, but that's that's to give you an idea of what's going on to get us to a text like this that we just can't see the originals of. There's a way to test this process, and this is what to me is amazing. and This is how we can see that it works. So how would you test the process of Bible or even any other ancient text uh, restoration? What you want to do is you want to compare first the Bible with some other ancient texts. Let's see how we stack up in certain tests that can be done. And the first test we're going to do is look at the interval between the original manuscript and the copies that we have found. Look at the time interval. We're talking about books that are thousands of years old. And so can we imagine that there's been a long enough gap that many, many changes have been inserted that the text is significantly different from the original text? I think we can imagine that and see how that would happen even in our lifetime, but certainly over several lifetimes or several hundred lifetimes. So let's test the process. We have in existence fragments of papyri that are copies of New Testament books that date from the 2nd and 3rd century AD. The New Testament was written in the 1st century. So within 200 years of the original writings, we've got these copies. Now, we don't know exactly uh, when these copies were made. We just know what the most recent they could possibly be is. And That's somewhere in the second or third century. So within 200 years, this copy had been made. Somebody might have been looking at the original when they made this copy. It's possible. You can't guarantee that. But we've got these fragments, at least, and we can compare them to what we have, and it looks, it's the same thing we've got. We've also got this Chester Beatty Papyri, which is parts of all four Gospels. By the way, I don't speak French, so if I'm hurting your ears with that, I'm sorry. Uh, or Latin or whatever that word papyrus is in. Uh, so th- we have this Chester Beatty document that is parts of all four Gospels. That's from 250 A.D. at the absolute latest. We know it's probably a little earlier than that, but at the absolute latest, 250. So that puts it within 110 years, 120 years of, uh, 150 years of the, of the writing of the New Testament. I'll, I'll get my math right one of these days, too. I'm a language guy, not a math guy. At any rate, we got these all four Gospels from around uh, 250 after, uh, uh, around 100 years after the writing of the the New Testament. And you've got the John Ryland's fragment that's part of John's Gospel that's from around 130 AD. That means it's within 40 years of when John wrote his Gospel. That's amazing. That very possibly could be an original uh, manuscript that was looking, a manuscript that was looking at the original when that was made. I mean, that's very feasible within 40 years So we've got some of this documentation. Like I said, very rare. To be that close to the original is very rare. We've got a lot more that are are further out. But it's amazing to think we've got some of that. What about ancient books from, from the rest of the ancient world, the classics? What about Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar? He wrote that between 58 and 50 BC. The only extant copies we have are from 850 AD. That's 900 years later. That's all we've got. So it clearly has been, been uh, corrupted, the, the text of Gallic Wars. Nobody says that, by the way. What about histories of Rome by, by Tacitus? He wrote it in 109 BC. The only copies we have are from 900. That's 1,000 years now removed. 1,000 <laughs> years removed. Nobody's saying, oh, the histories by Tacitus, you can't trust that. <laughs> Rome didn't really, That stuff didn't really happen in pre-Rome. Uh, The history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, that's from 431 B.C. The only copies we have are from 900 A.D. That's 1,300 years. I can do that math. That's 1,300 years. And again, nobody, there is no textual critic, there's no historian who will say, you know, we just can't trust that. We better not base what we know on the Gallic Wars on what, what Caesar wrote. What they're saying is, go find out what Caesar said about that. That's how we'll know for sure. And they use these texts. Go find out what Tacitus says about the history of Rome. That's how we know what we know about Rome. From these thousand-year-old copies. And nobody's concerned that we don't have the original text. Why? Well, Because Rome, the history of Rome doesn't say you better change your moral life. The history of Rome doesn't say there's a God who is demanding things of you, but wants to give you salvation. The history of Rome just says, here's what happened. But you know what? The Bible... Is a history book. The Bible mostly just says, here's what happened. What happened are some incredible things. What happened are some things that evidence the interference of a supernatural God into the super, into the natural world. But that's what starts freaking people out. <laughs> we don't want to see that. We don't want to have to hear that, because it means we're going to have to examine our lives. What about the number of extant copies? This is where I want to talk about evidence that we have, that our faith is based on evidence, on something concrete, something solid, the substance of our faith, Hebrews 11 says, what we can stand on. We can can talk about these things in real terms. And so as we begin to look at the number of copies, the textual evidence we have for the New Testament is amazing. Complete or incomplete papyri, we have 96. I want to tell you, that's a conservative number. I have recently updated my numbers. What I was using was numbers from 2005. In 2005, that number was actually bigger. But they've discovered with new archaeology that some of those things they thought were were helpful as papyri for the New Testament may not have actually been. And so they've they've scaled their number back. I think it's an honest way of looking at things. 96 is still quite a bit for these ancient, incomplete papyri, like the John Rylands and the ones you saw up there before. Uncial, which are all caps, the way they used to write in in Greek in the New Testament. This is looking at New Testament, by the way. The way they used to write sometimes was in all capitals. It was was easier to read. It was easier to write, depending on how you're, you're, you're working. So they had these all caps manuscripts, 269 of those are available, that was a little higher in the 2005 figures, these are from 2016, figures I'm using here, so there's been more archaeology since then. The minuscule manuscripts, that is writing like we do, with a capital beginning and then the minuscule uh, letters for the rest, 2,667 of those manuscripts have been found. That's an amazing number. Lectionary manuscripts, ones that are done in an ornate style, that are done with, with special caution, 2,490. What that means is that the total manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament is over 5,000 documents. <laughs> Sound like a lot? It's a lot of documentation. Let's compare it, though, to the documentation for some of these ancient texts we were looking at. Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar. Not only is it 900 years removed from its writing, we've only got 9 or 10 manuscripts that support it. 9 or 10. It's interesting they say 9 or 10. We're not sure about this last one. It might be. It might not be. They're being conservative even there. And so before, when I said 96 was conservative, they would have said 96 or 100, and they figured out 4 really don't pertain. So what about the histories of Rome by Tacitus. We know he wrote 14 books because they've been mentioned in other letters and things. Like I said, this is going on in the ancient world all the time. Somebody's quoting from Tacitus. And so we know these other books exist, but we only have four and a half of them. Out of 14, we've only found four and a half. And yet, the histories of Rome is a pretty solid story. Of his 16 yearbooks, his annals of Rome, only 12 have been found. We know there's a four more out there that have been referenced, maybe even in the books that we have but we've only got 12 of the 16, and yet nobody doubts whether or not we've got what we need to understand what Tacitus was talking about. And that history of the Peloponnesian War, that was from now uh, 1,300 years separated from the original, we've only been able to find eight manuscripts of that. So you put all of those together, you've got 8 and 12 is 20, 14 is 34, 9 or 10 more, 45 pieces of evidence for three classical history studies. as compared to 5,500 for just the New Testament. We're not even talking about the Old Testament. That theres It's beyond argument for the Old Testament. It's beyond argument for the New Testament as well when you look at the difference in the evidence. It's amazing what they found. So let's talk about this question of there being errors. Some of these manuscripts they have have errors. They have variant, variants in them. They clearly do exist. I mean, it's no exaggeration when someone says, look, grandma changed this when she translated it for her grandkids. Yeah, she put something in there. We know it's there, but they're not nearly as grievous as critics would like us to believe because you always want to paint the worst case scenario of the enemy that you're, you're going up against, right? But let's be honest about it. They're not nearly as grievous as they would like us to believe. There are four major types of variants. We're going to look at those four and talk about how significant they are. I think it's important that we do this. The first one is a difference in orthography, or there's meaningless words. Orthography is like spelling and syntax and things like that. These, these things change over time. Uh, they're by far the most common errors in the variants. Notice we're talking about in the variants. There's a lot of copies that are just alike. They, the scribes did their job perfectly. They were very meticulous about it. But we've got these variants that might be from some of the translations. or mom and dad made a copy. So you've got these variations, and in the variations, we see these, these differences. And among those, the most common are these changes in orthography, or a word that's in there that, I don't know what that word means, or it was written upside down, or whatever. Something happened. Most of the time, we can see that the person who was writing it got tired. You can even see a change in the style of the way it was being written. Maybe they switched people. And so all of a sudden, somebody was really meticulous. Somebody else comes along, and they're not as meticulous. They start making mistakes. And usually, it's something simple. You can still tell what was meant. Instead of Isaiah, you've got Isaias. Well, that, that name even changed over time. And so it's the same name. But it depends on where you are, and it might even be like a translation of the name. Most of you don't know me as Carlos. In Brazil, they don't know me as Carl. They can't say it. It sounds like Cal. So I'm Carlos. Is it the same name? I still respond to it the same way. It's me, but it's not the name my parents gave me. So if you see something written about me from Brazil, it's going to have a different name than you're used to. It doesn't mean anything. I'm still the same person, right? You can figure that out. It's not hard to to, to figure out. Sometimes it's just a copying of the same word twice. I see this on billboards. I was not only a language guy, I was a page editor for journalism for a while. Things jump out at me. And so you'll see a billboard where they're saying something and at the end of the line, they've got the word the, and then it comes again at the next line, the same word the. They didn't even proofread on a billboard. So what if it's like grace and and peace? (laughs) Okay, how many ands are supposed to be? Let's throw the Bible out. Grace and and peace, that's ridiculous. No, he copied the same word twice. It's grace and peace. And in all the other ones we have, it's just grace and peace. We know that's the right one. But you see, if you're a critic, you can't trust it. They're putting in extra words. <laughs> they're making nonsense. Really? Come on, be honest. <laughs> if your mom wrote that in a letter, would you throw her letter out? No, you'd realize she was tired. She was still writing to you. <laughs> Come on. We need to be honest about these things. By far, these are the most common types of errors, and they're easily recognizable. You can see what happens. It's not a big jump. The second kind are the kinds that don't affect translation of the text, but they do have a, have a, an issue. They're really common among the variants. Usually, they're questions of linguistics. So uh, uh, linguistics change over time. People speak in different ways. You know, our, our generation speaks differently than the generation before us did. I tried to use a word the kids are using these days, and my daughter said they don't use that anymore. So I tried to be cool. I was not relevant anymore. But that happens. Language is dynamic, and that's a blessing, actually. It is because we learn to communicate with each other through the dynamism of language. But there's sometimes, in different languages, you do things structurally a little bit different. Uh, Sometimes you'll use the definite article when you're speaking of a person that you don't know, when you're just defining somebody. In Brazil, when people first meet me, they call me the brother instead of brother or by my name. They don't know who I am, and so they use a title with me. It's really common. It's not trying to, to set me apart. It's what they do with everybody. And it used to be, that they would use those titles, especially with older people, all the time. They'd put a a definite article, the elder person or the the lady. Now they're starting to drop that. (laughs) It used to be in Brazil that my wife's name had an accent over the the I in her name, Patricia. Now they've they've dropped the accent. You still say it, you just don't write it anymore. It's not needed because everybody understands Patricia is Patricia. So there's a lot of words like that that as I was learning coming into Portuguese, I couldn't see where the accents were supposed to be. I would say them wrong. And they'd say, well, there used to be an accent on the O, so say it with an accent, then I'd get it right. So it's dropped off because everybody knows how to say it. And so as you're translating where most of these variants happen, you're going to get things like that. Instead of saying Abraham took Lot, it'll say Abraham took the Lot with him when he went to Paden Aram. Okay, well, you throw the Bible out because the Lot is there? No, you make an understanding about linguistics. That was needed wherever that version was made. That's why they did things. But it doesn't change the Bible text. It just makes it understandable. That's, that's a, a dynamic equivalent in translation. That's all they did. And we need that for English, and they needed it for the language they were translating into as well. It is not an error. It's actually a linguistic necessity. It's just something different from what was on the original autograph. By the way, Jesus read from a translation. <laughs> uh, he was reading from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation. There were other translations available as well. And he trusted that he had the word of God. And the word of God could not be broken. So we can trust translations even when they make these conventions of translation. There are some differences that are significant, but are not viable. These are a very small portion of the errors that we find. You've got one in our modern text today. What I love about what what modern translators and version makers do, when there's a variant, you'll have a little footnote. Sometimes you'll have something that's in... Um, I can't think what they're called now, but brackets. You'll have something in brackets and it'll say, some manuscripts don't have this. Most of yours will have it in italics and say, some manuscripts say this instead. If you go to Jude verse 25, some of your versions say, to God our Savior. Some say, to the only God our Savior. Throw that Bible out. Can you believe they would say that? (laughs) Is that a big change? It's significant. But does it really change anything about the doctrine? The only God our Savior? is God, is Jehovah. (laughs) That's been said since Deuteronomy chapter 6. It doesn't change the doctrine of who God is. It's just something somebody somehow added in one of the textual variants, and it stuck because it got copied over and over. And our translators, because they're honest, say some versions don't have the only God. You make a decision on which one of those you think it was originally. We left them both for you to consider. I like when they do that. When you're reading from different versions, it helps you. I usually study when I'm going to study and put together something from four different versions. One of them is in Portuguese. It's an efficient language, and I I like studying in it. But I use three other uh, English translations, and it helps to get a a sense for what really was there. It's a way to honestly attack the text. Attack in a good way. (laughs) Uh, So uh, there are some differences that are significant and viable. These are extremely rare. There are two really good examples, and I think your Bibles both point them out. These are less than 1% of the text. The ending of Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20, most of your versions will have some kind of an asterisk or maybe even in, uh, uh, brackets around it. It'll say, doesn't appear in several manuscripts. And so it's possible that it, it's an insertion by a scribe. It's also possible that it's not in the later manuscripts because it fell off of the end of the scroll. It's at the end of Mark, the very last verses. Those are both excellent possibilities. I don't know. I haven't studied that as deeply. I have a position on it, but I'm not going to share it. It doesn't matter. But there's, there's a reasonable uh, context for why that might not be there or why it might be there. And in the end, you can leave them out if you don't trust them. I like them in there, but you can leave them out. It doesn't change anything doctrinally. It's a pretty big section of Scripture, but if you leave it out, you still get the same truths that are taught there in other places in Scripture. So if someone is challenging me on that when I'm studying Mark, I'll say, okay, let's leave it out. Okay, you still need to be baptized? <laughs> you still need to understand these things that are in that text that you're trying to, to get away from? Yeah, because look, here's another text that says the same thing. It's all there. The most doubtful is in John chapter 7, starting in verse 53 and going through verse 11 of chapter 8. It's a favorite story of many people. It's the woman who was found in adultery. And they bring her before Jesus and say, we caught this woman in the very act. There's a lot of things that are suspect about that story. Where's the man? <laughs> They're both supposed to be stoned to death. They want to stone her. And Jesus says, all right, whichever one has no guilt, cast the first stone. stone. Whichever one has no sin, cast the first stone. That's a great story. And it may be true. It may have really happened. It is not inspired. (laughs) It does not belong in the text of John. I'm almost absolutely certain of that. A good friend of mine did his final project on his Greek class, translating the book of John. It's really simple Greek. It's Koine Greek. It's really simple. Greek students could translate it. Nobody in the class could translate that section. (laughs) It's a different Greek from the whole rest of the, of the, the book of John. And so that was a convincing argument for him and pretty convincing for me as well. Likely an insertion from a scribe later on. But all of your Bibles will say, this doesn't appear in some text. It's nothing to lose your faith over, and it's not something worth throwing the Bible out. Whether we keep it or leave it, it doesn't end up changing anything about the doctrine the Bible teaches. And it's obvious, it's really clear. That one and the one in Mark, there's a couple others. Those are the biggest variants. Now, I've gone through all four types of variants for you. And I want you to notice what a chunk Mark and John are in terms of the amount of space they would take up in these variants. Because I want you to think about that when we look at this quote. This is from James D. Bales. In fact, I want to read it from here so I can see it better. It's from James D. Bales in his book, You Believe. He's a textual critic. And he's trying to show why these variants aren't as drastic as people think. Substantial variations, those are the ones that actually change things, could not compose more than one thousandth of the entire text. To have an idea of what this means, we can be very clear. A Greek New Testament here at my side has 560 pages which are smaller than the size of my hand. So he's got a little reference book, a Greek New Testament, this big. <laughs> there are a couple of lines of variant readings on most of the pages. So on every page at the bottom, it'll say, some manuscripts have Isaiah instead of Isaiah. <laughs> some manuscripts have the only God instead of God. So it'll have those at the, couple, at the bottom of each of these pages, 560 pages total for the New Testament. And he says... Um, There are a couple lines of variant readings on most of the pages. One thousandth of these couple of lines on each page would be more or less half of one page of these 560. Fifteen or sixteen little lines. How many of those little lines do you think were taken up by the text from Mark and the text from John? (laughs) So whatever's left over composes the rest of that thousandth of the text that is a significant variation. In other words, it's not very much. It's not something that you should throw the entire Bible out for. Because they're insignificant, significant variations, and they're all easily identifiable. When you see them, you're like, wait a second, that doesn't fit. (laughs) That's not what all the others are saying. (laughs) And so you can see right away, this is an insertion or a deletion sometimes. But it's significant, but it really doesn't affect anything because we've got the rest. We can see what it's really supposed to be. Here's some more that's that's said about this. This is from F.F. Bruce, another biblical scholar. He's writing in a book called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? The evidence in favor of the writings of our New Testament is greatly more than the evidence in favor of many of the writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, its authenticity would be seen in general as beyond all doubt. Now look what he says here. It is a curious fact that historians have often been more ready to trust in the records of the New Testament than many theologians have. Historians look at the New Testament documents and say, what a goldmine. <laughs> look at all the textual evidence we have. We know that these stories in here are going to be a true history. In fact, there are many towns that people used to attack the Bible saying they don't exist. Those, those towns never exist. That's myth that they found later. Why? Because they went looking where the Bible said they should be, and there they were. <laughs> Historians and archaeologists love the, the, the veracity of the Bible. Theologians don't like it because they've got a position they've been hammering on, and the Bible says, that's not the position the Bible takes. And they say, well, you can't trust the Bible. Then why are you standing on a position at all? <laughs> well, just, we can just keep our tradition. Where did that come from? You can't trust whoever wrote that tradition either if you can't trust the Bible, right? What <laughs> are my arguments when people come along and say, you can't trust the Bible writers. Well, can you trust your science writers? <laughs> Aren't they men also? The Bible was written by men. Your science textbook was written by men. <laughs> Who are you going to trust? Look at all the evidence. Look at the claims they made and then how the evidence backs up many of their claims. Another scholar, J.W. Montgomery, wrote, to express skepticism with regard to the restored text of the books of the New Testament, he was to allow all of the writings of classical antiquity to fall into obscurity, since there is no other document from the ancient period that is so well attested as the New Testament is. Throw them all out. <laughs> Plato, Socrates, these histories of Rome, throw them out. Because none of them have as much evidence as the New Testament. You're to throw the New Testament out, you've got to throw out everything else from classical antiquity. You ready to do that? I don't think so. <laughs> Nobody's ready to do that. But if you're going to accept those based on what little evidence we have, why not accept this based on all the evidence we have? You might not agree of the source, but you better agree that it's a viable historical document. The science points to that. Give us that at least. Here's another one that's amazing. In 1947, a very unique way to test this process of the transmission of Bible text came about when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is amazing. This is already making my head start to cringe a little bit. It's beautiful what we saw, what we found. Until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most ancient complete manuscripts we had were from A.D. AD. (laughs) 980. And we're talking about Old Testament documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, we were talking about New Testament in the charts I showed before. We're going to go back even further and I look at the Old Testament. So we're talking about things that were written 2,400 to 1,400 years before the most recent manuscripts of the Old Testament we had, which were in AD 980. So critics affirmed, as I often did, that certainly because of the huge time interval they were mistakes, and that you did not have a copy of the original. There's no way it had been corrupted over and over again. You couldn't trust it. Critics were affirming that until 1947. They don't don't affirm it anymore. (laughs) The manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated from around 250 BC. So that means they're 1,200 years older than the ones we had from 980. It also means they're within 500 years of the autographs of some of these. (laughs) That is an amazing thing to think about. There are fragments of every Old Testament book except Esther. They're all there, and a lot of other things that were in there too that were helpful, archaeology. They have incredibly intact scrolls of books like Daniel and Isaiah. We're going to see a picture of the Isaiah scroll in a moment. It is incredible. I've seen photos of it that friends of mine have been able to see when they've been visiting places where the Isaiah scroll is. Uh, and so it's just incredible to think about. There's the Isaiah scroll. You've got the, uh, Donald Perry, one of the biblical scholars, looking at that. It's very limited access now. I don't think it's even able to do that anymore. Uh, But the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls was punctuated by the find of the Isaiah Scroll. Because the text on this scroll 1,200 years earlier than the text we had evidence for was word for word 95% equal. (laughs) Word for word. How much had been corrupted? Not even 5%. And the 5% variation was orthography, was linguistic change, things you would expect to find over 1,200 years of time. You can't even speak English from 1,200 years ago, try it. You Ever read Chaucer, you ever read uh, Beowulf? You don't speak that English. We don't speak King James English anymore, that's why we got the new King James. We can't even speak from 1611, that's not that far ago. Try 1,200 years and see if things have changed. That's what they found on this scroll. 95% equal, except for these orthographic changes and not a single variation that affected any doctrinal issues. You would expect that. You've just got name changes. Maybe the names of places are different now. Think Pittsburgh was called Pittsburgh 1,800 years ago? What? <laughs> there was a name here of something. Whatever the Algonquins called it, or whoever the Indians were that were here. So you've got a way to test this. Gary Brantley, after he was talking about the Isaiah Scroll, said, The well-preserved Isaiah Scroll illustrates the tender care with which these sacred texts were copied. Since about 1,700 years separated Isaiah from the Masoretic text, the one we had from 980, from the original source, textual critics assumed that centuries of copying and recopying this book must have introduced scribal errors. Interestingly, when scholars compared the manuscript of Isaiah to the Isaiah Scroll of Qumran, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls, the correspondence was astounding. It forcibly demonstrated the accuracy with which scribes copied sacred text. There are lots of stories about how the scribes did this, and they were very meticulous to the point of throwing away the pen they're writing with if they made an error with it and destroying the scroll they were working on starting over. That's a lot of meticulous work because they wanted to make sure they got it right. The Dead Sea Scrolls have increased our confidence that faithful scribal transcription substantially preserved the original content of Isaiah. It is amazing what they found. Have there been errors added into the Bible? Okay, let's admit there have been. Are they errors that change anything? No, they're spelling errors. They've added the word "and or the in some places. Has't changed anything about what the text is. In fact, what it proves to us is they were very, very careful that these changes did not come into the text. as we're talking about that Isaiah scroll, I want to finish on what was found in that Isaiah scroll, a promise from God. <laughs> As the rain comes down in the snow from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and, shall, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. That's Isaiah 55:10 and 11. If God can make a claim like that, can he not preserve the word so that it got right here into your hands today? Because what he had in mind, even in the time of Isaiah, what he had in mind, even in Genesis 3, was looking down through the telescope of history, the future for those people, the past now for us, existence for God. And he could see you. And he could see you would need salvation from your sins. And that the gospel was the only thing that would have the power to bring that about. And so he preserved it. The evidence is overwhelming in favor of the textual evidence for the gospel. We can talk later about whether or not the claims that it's from God are true, but I think even the preservation leads us to think that this is not just something that was done by men. But God loves you and has revealed this word for a purpose, because he wants you to draw near to him so he can draw near to you. And that's only possible if he can sanctify you, if he can wash your sins to bring you close. If you're not a Christian, that is really what we're here about (laughs) The reason we even look at these evidences is to bolster our faith so we can then go out and share it with others and help them see what we've seen. We want you to draw near to God. If you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to come forward and have your sins washed away in baptism, we can help you with that today. We'd love to help you do that. If you are a Christian and you've been struggling in your faith, you haven't got the the conviction that these things that you're standing on are true, we want to help you with that as well. We want to hold your hands up. We want to help you not to struggle in sin, but to be convicted and overcome. With the faith that overcomes the world. Whatever your need is, if we can help you with it today, once you make it known, we're going to stand and sing this song for your obedience. <clears throat>